we come tonight to a powerful and absolutely unique passage in the scriptures. We are going to be ushered into the honeymoon suite on the night of the wedding. It's a little bit, you know, awkward, really. What's spoken of in this chapter is so straightforward and so powerful in its description that it's really astounding. And one of the things I note about Song of Solomon chapter 4 is it is so honest and transparent in its description, but there is a poetry and a beauty about the description. There is not the slightest bit of crude talk in the entire Song of Solomon, but much less chapter 4. It's a remarkable section of scripture. Really none other like it. Now when we left last week at the end of Song of Solomon 3. The maiden was being carried on her beloved's bridal procession. His palanquin. Do you remember that? The the litter carried by people. His limousine in our modern thing. His entourage. The 60 valiant men. We talked about all this last week. You can reference the the recording or whatever. And after all that, now they come to the wedding itself. So this is what we're going to see in the first five verses here. These are the words of the beloved, the, the man. Again, let me just remind you, I forgive my repetition if this is already very square in your mind, but the Song of Solomon is a, a section of poetry where you have different speakers speaking. In this particular section, it's a dialogue between the maiden, the young woman who's going to be married, and the beloved who is in the figure of King Solomon. And then there's one other speaker in this chapter. I'm not going to tell you who it is because it's going to blow your mind uh, when we get to the end of it here. But you have the maiden and the beloved. And we know this from the text of the Song of Solomon because the grammar of the Hebrew has feminine nouns and masculine nouns. And from that, you can figure out who's speaking. So here we have the beloved speaking beginning now at verse one. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like the flock of goats. Going down from Mount Gilead, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing. Every one of them bears twins, and none of is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. We last left with a wedding procession. The best way we can picture there, put, put together the snapshots given to us in the Song of Solomon. They had the wedding procession. They had the wedding ceremony. Now they're in the honeymoon suite. 
Now it's just the maiden and her beloved together there in this very intimate moment, the the, the moment they've been dreaming of. I mean, every couple dreams of this. We, we, We don't talk much about it you know in in that we we kind of leave some some you know respectful distance from it all but you know we, we talk all about the plans for the wedding and how great the wedding is going to be listen both the bride and groom they're really thinking about the wedding night that's very much transfixed in their thoughts and so here you have the couple together after the ceremony and I want you to notice how the beloved begins After all of it, in this time of the first intimacy of the maiden and her beloved after the wedding, I want you to notice what dominates in this chapter are the words of the beloved. What he's doing is he's preparing his virgin bride for their first act of marital intimacy. And so what does he do first? He speaks to her. He praises the beauty of the bride. He's showing affection to the maiden. I want you to see that before he ever touched her with his hand, he touched her with his words. He spoke to her. You're so beautiful. You're so lovely. I can't get away from this without thinking about what the apostle Paul would later write. This is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. We're not going to put this up on the screen, but you can remember. It's a short verse. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her. It is wrong for a husband to withhold affection from his wife. Now, oftentimes we think sometimes in a marriage or at least in the stereotypical marriage, you you have a wife that may be withholding intimacy from her husband. But this is what Paul says. Husbands, are you showing your wife the affection that is due unto her? And Paul meant this to apply to every Christian marriage. It shows that every wife has affection due to her. I don't know, you could put it, you could put it in a necklace around, you could put a t-shirt on every wife that says affection due. It's due to her. She has a right to it. And, and you and I as a Christian husband, we have a responsibility to, to show that affection. And, and Paul didn't just say, just show it to the young wives, just show it to the pretty wives, show it to the submissive wives. He didn't just say just them are due this affection. No, he said you as a Christian wife, you are due this affection. By the way, Jesus is affectionate to his own bride according to the same pattern. In any regard, look at what he says to his bride. There they are. They're in the honeymoon suite. He's preparing her for their first act of marital intimacy. And he says in verse one, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. I don't know what particular Bible translation you have in front of you. I'm reading from the New King James Version, which retains some of the archaic English phrasing just because it's poetically beautiful. But you understand that when he says fair, he doesn't mean like medium. Like like there's really pretty and then there's ugly. You're fair. You're somewhere in the middle. That's not what he means at all. Fair in this older English usage is a way of describing beautiful. You're beautiful. You're gorgeous. 
You're so beautiful in my eyes. And notice it. He repeats it twice. It's almost as if he knows you can't believe this about yourself. But I'm going to persuade you. There's nobody more beautiful in the universe than you to me right now. Previously, we saw this in Song of Solomon chapter 1. She doubted her own beauty. But now, truthfully, he assures her doubly so. You are the most beautiful woman in the world to me. You see what he's doing? He is making her feel, rightfully so, there's nothing phony here, it's all sincere, but he's making her feel so secure in his love so that she can yield herself to him in the way that is appropriate in the marriage relationship. And then he begins to praise specific aspects of her beauty. Look at it there in verse one. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. See, he not only made a general statement about the maiden's beauty, behold, you are fair. And sometimes for us as husbands, that's really easy. Behold, you're fair. You're beautiful. Baby, you're beautiful. But then he goes on and starts describing specifics. He has an eye that observes the beauty of his wife. And honestly, for us as husbands, sometimes this is difficult. I mean, you're, you're looking at the guy who sometimes has to be told that his wife got a haircut. Or, you know, something done to her hair. Because, oh, yeah, that's right. It does look swell, baby. <laughs> There's just something about that. But, but notice, notice, that's not right. He notices these things in his bride. He did this po- poetic language. And the poetic language draws on images and ideas that are familiar to their culture. They're not so familiar to our own culture. But he wanted her to know how beautiful she was in his eyes. Now, again, I I can't resist this, noticing how the commentators of old had a hard time with this. John Trapp, the Puritan commentator that I tell you about from time to time, he thought that these beautiful eyes belonged to the church, the bride of Christ. And so he says here, and I'm quoting, but by eyes here, we are chiefly to understand pastors and ministers, those seers, as they were called of old. I don't think he was talking about pastors and ministers. He's talking about the beautiful eyes of his bride as he looks into those eyes on their wedding night. And then he mentions that as the first of seven characteristics of the brides. Her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her lips, her temples, that is her cheeks, her neck and her breasts. This listing of seven attributes is probably intended to denote perfection in the unity of the seven. And it's also evident that the beloved is here using his powers of observation and description. You know what this shows us? He's not focused on himself. He's not one of those guys who can't walk into a mirror, walk into a room where there is a mirror and only look at himself. No, there's no focus upon him. He is studying her. He's enthralled with her and he's using his powers of observation to let her know how special she is to him. Listen, that maiden could safely yield to a man who cares that much about her, who is that into her and so unselfishly. So what else is, your eyes are like a dove. I don't know what's so great about a dove's eyes that make them good, but it made sense to her. Verse one, your hair is like a flock of goats. You and I think, well, goat hair, that doesn't sound so great. Probably the picture that he has here is 
There were many flocks of mainly black goats in Israel of that time. One commentator suggests he's thinking of a flock of black goats coming down a hillside, you know, flowing in all their black hair. He says, your beautiful black hair is that gorgeous. It looks like a flowing flock of black goats running down a hill. Uh, And then he says, verse two, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep. The the idea isn't that her teeth are woolly. The the idea is that they all look the same. They're all clean. They match one another. When they say every one of them bears twins, the idea is is they all look alike. They're complete. She doesn't have an empty gap where there should be a tooth. Baby, your smile is beautiful. By the way, here's another Puritan commentator who just couldn't, couldn't believe that this was a man praising a woman. He understood this primarily as an allegory relating to the description of the church. He says, by the teeth, some understand the teachers, which may be compared to teeth because they prepare and as it were, choose spiritual food for the people. Yeah, I don't think so, Matthew. Verse three, your lips are like a strand of scarlet I suppose, I don't know what standards are beauty, but I think generally uh, women in our culture, uh, kind of the the fuller the lips are, the more attractive it's thought to be. In that culture, they thought that thinner lips were more attractive. And so when he's saying, your your lips are like a beautiful strand of scarlet, that's an expression of praise. They're well outlined. They're a beautiful deep red color. Verse three, that your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Now, the the word there for temples in the Hebrew, it also includes the cheeks. He's not talking about this area, you know, up near her head, right by her ears. He's talking about her cheeks. He goes, your cheeks have a beautiful pomegranate-like color. I gotta say, one of the funniest things I read in any commentary, I read right here. I, I read one commentator taking pains to point out that he was talking about the color of the outside of the pomegranate. He's not talking about the inside of the pomegranate because he said, if they're talking about the inside of the pomegranate, it would be like the world's worst case of acne that she had. (laughs) But that's not what he's describing. Just a beautiful red color to her cheeks. Then he goes on, verse four, your neck is like the tower of David. It isn't that it's so big or or proportioned like a tower. No, it's speaking of the noble and strong character displayed by her neck, both literally and symbolically. In the ancient world, the neck was one part of the body that was thought to represent character. You know, a, a person of noble character had a strong neck. I mean, they would just think that way. A bent over neck was a picture of humiliation. A stiff neck was a sign of, of stubbornness. But, but to have a noble, strong neck, it was just a sign of nobility. And he says, this is what you're like. And then he says in verse five, your two breasts are like two fawns which feed among the lilies. The idea here is that the maiden's breasts look as innocent and attractive as young deer. Or also perhaps that they're as beautiful as the white fields of the filly that are mar- of the lilies marked by the color of two fawns. Um, one commentator suggests that, that he, he's, he's saying, I want to caress your breast. Just like you want to pet a small deer. I want to caress your breast. And this is how he's speaking to the maiden. I, I cannot pass this comment up from John Trapp. You can just imagine what these old Puritan guys do with a reference like this. Um, he thought that the, um, it could no way apply to an actual woman. So he said, 
the church's breasts here are said to be fair, full, and equally matched. Hereby, some understand the two testaments. I, I don't know even where you go with that. I just don't. Now, something did strike me about this as we chuckle over John Trapp's comment. Something struck me about this, though. When you think of the many crude terms that men use to refer to a woman's breasts, isn't there something so beautiful and powerful in the, in the poetic, intimate, but so dignified way that there's nothing dirty here. This is a celebration of the strength and the purity and the goodness of marital love. There's nothing insecure here. I I mean, she's, she's let her breast be seen for her beloved on their wedding night. She's not shy. She's not timid. He wants to make her feel secure, but, but there's nothing dirty or crass about this. This is absolutely remarkable for its, and please understand what I mean. This. I mean this in the purest way, for its erotic strength, but at the same time for its utter purity. I don't know if you'll find anything like this in literature, especially ancient literature. Now verse six Here the beloved speaks again, longing to consummate his love for the maiden. He says in verse six, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. What does he mean? Well, he's speaking poetry. But he's saying, baby, let's be together all night. Let's go until the shadows are gone. Let's go until we can enjoy breakfast together in the morning. Until the day breaks. He welcomed the coming of the night after the celebration of the wedding in the previous snapshot. And he says, let's spend a splendid wedding night together. Now, some people focus on the mountain or hill imagery in verse 6 and think it's another reference to the breasts of the maiden. I don't really get that exactly. I think it's more just a poetic reference to their seclusion. We're alone. We're together. It's like we're out in the mountains. We're out in the hills. It's just you and me. I think that's probably the sense that he has here. And now he's still speaking. Remember, it's so fascinating that it's mostly the beloved that does the talking in chapter four here on their wedding night. And now he speaks in verse seven and he says, you are all fair, my love. And there is no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon, look from the top of Amana." from the top of Senir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. First he says, and this is in verse seven and so powerful, you are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Now after giving that sevenfold description of the maiden's beauty, dove's eyes, Uh, the hair like a flock of goats, so forth and so on. After giving that sevenfold description of her beauty, now the beloved summarizes his observation. 
she's not just beautiful or fair to him. What does he say? You are all fair. You are complete beauty. There's no spot in you. Objectively. If, If I tried, I don't know, put on a scientist coat. I can look at my wife and say, she's not perfect. You know, there's this flaw, there's that flaw. Every human being is flawed. But then I take off my scientist coat, as if I could ever wear one, and I come over, and I want to have the heart of God and the heart of the beloved in the Song of Solomon, and this I know. I look at my wife, Inga Lil, and I say, you are all fair. There is no spot in you. You are perfect for me. Perfect. There's, there's, there's nothing else that could match. You and you alone. And this is the heart that God wants the beloved to speak to his man. Look, the woman objectively knows that she's not perfect. She could think of flaws in her character, flaws in her beauty, this or that, whatever it could be. I mean, she, she sees and compares and all this. Okay, that's clear. But you know what she needs to know? She needs to know that there's one man in the world who is utterly persuaded of the fact that you are perfect for me. There is no spot in you. You're perfect. And then he says this, and friends, this is so powerful in verse eight. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. Now, since the maiden came from the northern region, the the beloved probably here invites her to leave the northern region. I want you to come and live with me. Go, Go away from your family. Come, be with me. And I want you to leave not only behind your family, I want to leave behind your fears. The fears are referred to as the lion's dens, the, the mountains of the leopards. There's dangerous things out there. There's your family. I want you to go away from your family. I want you to go away from your fears. And you come with me. And it's so powerful the way he says it. You see, before, before he asked her to yield her virginity to him, before he would initiate their marital intimacy, before any of that, he looks at his wife and he says, I'm going to share my life with you. Let's share life together. Very powerful analysis from Douglas Kinlaw on this. He says here, quote, the come with me of our translation in Hebrew, ita, with me, is twice repeated, a prepositional phrase used as an invitation. He he wants her with him, with me, sums up his desire. In other words, what he says is, with me, with me. Now in Hebrew, especially in their poetry, repetition is used to give emphasis. And in the strongest possible way, The beloved is saying to his maiden, I want you with me. I want to live my life together with you. I want us to be one the way that God intended. The sad truth is that there are many wives who labor under the feeling, and sometimes it's a justified feeling, 
Sometimes I suppose it's not, but look, it's often justified. The feeling that the husband is happy to have her as a bedmate, is happy to have her as maybe a housekeeper or a house manager, is happy to have her as someone who would, you know, um, take care of the kids. But does he really want to be with her? No. If he had his choice as to who to spend a day with, wouldn't be her. There's a lot of wives who labor under that feeling, and it's sort of a personal agony for them. He doesn't really want to be with me. He may want things from me, but he doesn't want to be with me. Here, the beloved so powerfully puts all of that away. He says it, and in Hebrew, again, the repetition makes it very strong, with me, with me, come away with me. And by the way, if you look at it there in verse eight, it's the first time that he calls the maiden his spouse, his bride. From now on, he's gonna use the word repeatedly. You're gonna see the word spouse a lot from here to the end of the Song of Solomon. And then he says, go away, go away from your family, from your fears, and let's make it you and me together for the rest of our lives. Verse nine, he's not done praising the maiden and expressing the depth of his passion. Look at verse nine. He says, you've ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You've ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Your lips, oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. What a beautiful phrase. You've ravished my heart. I'm so in love with you. Now again, please, I want you to understand, and we'll see it a little bit later. Matter of fact, I mean, it's going to be surprisingly frank in the way that it describes the act of marital intimacy to come in the coming verses. What I want you to understand here is how before he ever touches her with his hands, he's touching her with his words over and over again. You've ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse, with one look of your eyes. I saw your eyes and I was knocked out. And then he says, verse 10, how fair is your love. And then he says, how much better than wine is your love. Friends, that is a remarkable statement in verse 10. Do you know why? It's a remarkable statement because earlier in chapter one, the maiden said to her beloved that his love was better than wine. So the maiden says to her, dear, your love is better to me than wine. Now he says it back to her on their wedding night. And what's significant about this? It's just a powerful principle that they're sharing this love talk amidst themselves. But if I could make, and this is going to be one of the few places tonight where I emphasize the spiritual analogy. Because we understand the Song of Solomon is primarily a love poem between a man and a woman. But we do see a spiritual analogy here. Now I want you to notice something. If the maiden represents the people of God, you and I, 
And if the beloved represents Jesus himself. Notice, back in chapter one, the maiden, the church, cries out to her Savior, your love is better than wine. Your your love gives us so much satisfaction, Jesus. Thank you for the goodness of your love. And see what Jesus says back to his people. Jesus says back to his people, your love is better than wine. Does it make sense to you that you enjoy the love of Jesus poured out into your life? To me, it makes perfect sense. You don't have to be a professor to figure that one out. The love of Jesus poured abroad in my life, it, it, it's wonderful, it's meaningful, it's fantastic. Okay, do you understand that by spiritual analogy we can say that our love to him, he finds it wonderful. I tell you what, that blows my mind. He, he is Boy, and I, I want to be careful here because I don't want to exaggerate, nor do I want to get overly sentimental. So I don't know if this is exactly the right word, but if it's not, please forgive me. But we could say that Jesus is enthralled by our love. He looks at the way that we love him and he says, that's better than wine to me. Our love to Jesus pleases him greatly. Then he continues to describe the maiden. Your lips, oh my spouse. He says, honey and milk are under your tongue. He might be referring to French kiss right there. It very well could be. Um, Verse 11, the fragrance of your garments. the, The whole scene here is very intimate. It's filled with beautiful sights and smells and tastes and words. We are very poetically yet powerfully brought to the place of the consummation of their intimacy. And so we read now in verse 12. Again, it's still the beloved speaking. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits. Fragrant henna with spikenard. Spikenard and saffron calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. He uses the image of his bride's sexuality to be like a garden. With these images, he's praising the virginity of his maiden. And he does so immediately before receiving what we might call the gift of her virginity. Her sexuality had not been given to another. Her sexuality was, look at it there in verse 12, it's like an enclosed garden. It's like a protected spring. It's like a fountain sealed. Listen, a garden is not like a a common ground. Nor is it a ground for the planting of things at random. Nor is it just for agriculture. No, a garden is for the production of something beautiful and pleasurable. It's really a very powerful description. Think of it. The idea of a a garden suggests privacy. The maiden's sexuality is going to be expressed privately a garden has the idea of separation I I mean a garden is a section there's the place where the garden begins and the place where the garden ends 
There's a separation there to it. And so the maiden's sexuality was to be focused on and set apart to her beloved. If I could put it in a strange metaphor, this is a garden, it's not a public park. But then we see also that a garden is sacred. That's how it is in Hebrew thinking. And the maiden's sexuality is something holy. And both he and, excuse me, both she and her beloved think it's so. But the idea of a garden also has the idea of security. The maiden's sexuality is, is to be respected and not violated. Matter of fact, it will not even be violated by the beloved. It's only to be expressed in the context of a welcoming, yielding relationship. So he goes on and he describes her sexuality as a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. It's not that this metaphorical spring or fountain is dried up and useless. No, it's that it's sealed up so that its goodness can go to the person that it is supposed to go to. Listen, in this poetic description of the maiden's sexuality, we have one of the most powerful descriptions in the scriptures indicating the value of virginity. You know, um, individuals and societies suffer greatly when virginity is no longer valued. It's very important for parents, for young men, for young women, and for the church as a whole to value virginity and to never treat it as something to be embarrassed of. Now, I'll be very straight with you as a pastor. It's very difficult to talk about this because immediately I think of the young man or the young woman who isn't married and perhaps has never been married and and yet they have yielded their virginity on some occasion. And my great fear is all they feel is condemnation when I talk about the value of virginity. Let me say, I think that there is a powerful principle that even if someone has unwisely yielded their virginity, I really think there is validity to the concept of what somebody might call a from now on virginity. Lord God, maybe I was foolish in my past and I didn't value my virginity. I could see a young man or a young woman dedicating themselves to God this way. Lord, the past is the past and I can't change that. But, but with you helping me, I just want to rededicate myself to you. And I want you to restore whatever value of this in my life can be restored. And I assure you, much can be restored. Probably much more than you think. So please, when I talk about the value of virginity, I don't mean it to be condemnation for anyone. But but it's important that we lift that up in our culture, that we lift that up in our thinking, that, that it's a wonderful thing for a young man or a young woman to go into marriage as virgins. You see, when we see the high value of virginity, it helps us to understand the biblical commands against premarital sex. You know, the Bible does speak against premarital sex. Some, some people don't really understand that. They think it only talks about adultery, violating the marital bond. But no, repeatedly, the Bible speaks about And repeatedly, the Bible places a high value on virginity. A, a lot of people are confused too. I, I feel especially bad for young women, although also for young men in our culture. 
I feel bad for the deception that's poured out upon young women. Do do you know how many young women really kind of feel, well, um, he must love me because he wants to have sex with me. Good heavens, what a lie. I remember reading some years ago, and I don't think the figures have gotten any better in the years since. This was some years ago, and I can only imagine it being worse now. In one survey, 55% of men said yes to the following question, okay? Yes to this question, 55% of men. If you could be certain that your wife or girlfriend would never know, would you have sex with any of her friends? 55% of men said yes. 58% of men said yes to this question. Have you ever had sex with a woman that you have actively disliked? 58% of men said yes. But young ladies, don't be foolish. Men will sweet talk you. And and let me say, if you're one of those men, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord get inside your head and, and not only make you honorable sexually, just make you honorable as a gentleman. It's amazing the way our society devalues the idea of virginity, makes it something mocking. But friends, no, 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 no. It matters. I could say this, it even matters if you're going to get married. There's something so powerful and so beautiful about a husband and wife, if it's possible for them to come to the wedding night giving each other the gift of their virginity. Sometimes the one that gets me the most of all, and as a pastor, it really kind of raises something within me. The one that says, well, we can just get married before God. Um, I, we hear that one as a pastor. You know, you do. No, there we were. We were out at Lover's Lane and um, right there uh, in the car, we just got married before God. You, you hear stories like that. And, and then they want to get all theological with you. It's amazing how people get theological at moments like that. And, and they say things like this, but pastor, what if we were on a desert island and there was nobody else around and just for the survival of thing? And this is what I always say, I say, you'd be surprised how many times we as pastors have heard that desert island excuse. <laughs> say, I'd say, when you're on the desert island, I give you full permission to do it. <laughs> right now, you're not in a desert island. You're in Santa Barbara, California, and we have all these established institutions for you to get a marriage that's recognized by God and man. Do it that way. But I will admit, I give you full permission on the desert island. Therefore, he continues to describe, verse 13, he continues with the garden imagery, speaking about the plants as an orchard of pomegranates, pleasant fields. He's just praising her. Verse 15, a a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters. Now, let me say something. I hope this isn't awkward for you or for me, actually. But, But I need to say, some people take the metaphor of the garden here to be a rather direct reference to female genitalia. Um, Given the continued metaphorical description of these verses and what went before, I I don't think that's it. I think the garden is a picture of the maiden's sexuality in general, not confined to any particular body part, though certainly I mean including it, But but I think it's wrong to take this and make it to refer to a specific body part. He's talking about her sexuality in general as being a rich 
Well, verse 15, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters. These are images of richness and abundance. The, the, the beloved understood that the maiden's virginity was not previously spent because she considered it small and insignificant. No, it was protected because it's great and important. There's anything I, I would say to, to someone who wants to hold on to their virginity, I'd say, your virginity is important. It's great. It's life-giving. It's not small. It's not insignificant. And now that the bride, the maiden, now that her virginity is about to be properly yielded, the life-giving character of it will be revealed and experienced. Now, um, again, let me just say, in seeing the goodness and the honor and the blessing of virginity, of seeing the goodness of a woman's sexuality being guarded and protected and not trampled upon until it's ready to be properly yielded in marriage. Again, we we just most strenuously want to say that for those who have not guarded their virginity carefully, or worse yet, for those who have had their virginity stolen from them, Do not believe the lie of the devil that you can never enjoy what the Song of Solomon speaks of here. God is a God of beautiful restoration, of beautiful power. If we want to extend the garden metaphor, a garden that has been trodden upon or that is in disarray can be restored to health and vitality again through through wisdom, through self-control, through effort, and most of all, through the work of the master gardener, God himself. It can be restored to goodness, and I believe that's God's plan. Um, Verse 16. Now the maiden speaks for the first time tonight. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. Here, for the first time and the only time in this section, the maiden speaks and she takes the imagery of the garden that the beloved has said and now it's a little awkward. I, I, feel like it, I feel like we're intruding here. Really? This is the most poetic and powerful love talk between a man and a woman. And she's saying, I'm yours. You can have me. This, notice it, it is so powerful. In verse 16, let my beloved come into his garden. He never called it his garden. It, it was always hers. My, my, my maiden is a garden. She's a garden. And now what does she say? I'm yours. My sexuality, it belongs to you. This is your garden. The poetic, the description I should say is poetic and shy, but the experience is deep and moving. Now again, uh, we see now, and we're just going to take a look at the first verse of chapter 5. The beloved will receive the offered virginity of the maiden. Look at verse 5, or verse 1 of chapter 5. 
I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my womb. Uh, the, the invitation was given in the last verse of chapter four. The act was consummated in between the chapters. And now at the end of, or the beginning of chapter five, the beloved says, I have enjoyed this. Thank you for granting me your garden, your sexuality. He accepted the invitation of his maiden. He received her virginity as a precious gift. And the long anticipated passionate desires were now rightfully and beautifully consummated. And notice what he says in verse one. He calls it my garden. First, it's the garden. Then she says, it's his garden. Now he says, it's my garden. Again, using the images of luxury and satisfaction. He expresses how beautiful and how satisfying their lovemaking was. All right, last couple lines of verse one of chapter five. We're gonna end right here. But did I remember telling you, we got a surprise speaker in this? This is mystifying to translators here. In the middle of verse one, chapter five, we have this line. It doesn't seem to be spoken by the maiden. It doesn't seem to be spoken of by the beloved. But we have a voice saying, eat, O friends, drink. Yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. The best research I found on those particular lines indicate that this is the voice of God. It's not the daughters of Jerusalem. It's not the brothers. It's not anybody else. It's not the maiden. It's not the beloved. Do you see what God is doing here? He looks down upon the married couple on their married night, enjoying the consummation of their love. And he says, this is good. He says to them, enjoy it. Drink deeply, he says. Oh, beloved ones, how delighted God is in this beautiful consummation and joining together in true love and intimacy of a married couple. We we need to just understand that this is truly the beginning here of a blessed sexual relationship. I'll conclude with this. Um, I, I don't know how many of you pray for God's blessing on your sexual relationship. But doesn't this line from verse one of chapter five show you that God wants to bless a sexual relationship? His stamp of goodness and approval is upon it. And it is entirely appropriate. It's appropriate if you're single and anticipate that someday you'll be married. Lord, have your blessing on the sexual relationship I will one day have. But if you're married, it's completely appropriate to say, Lord, have your blessing on this. Bless it, Lord. Bless it for your glory. Um, I want to drink deeply of the goodness that you describe. And then, why don't you take what we've described here and regard it, I'm saying this to the married couples, of course, regard it as homework. 
regard it as, as a way, mostly in this chapter, that a man should speak to his maid. Father in heaven, I thank you for this. I thank you for the goodness and the power of your word. And I pray simply, Lord, that you would um, help us, God. We, we live in a world, um, and I suppose, Lord, every generation has had their share of it, but we sure see it in our own. We live in a world that is so twisted when it comes to sexuality. And Jesus, uh, we pray that you would untwist us and set us right and help us to have our hearts and our minds renewed and modeled according to your great model. Thank you, God, for showing us in this great and powerful chapter. And Jesus, I pray that you would put a blessing upon um, the, the area of sexuality for every one of your people here tonight. We need your blessing upon this. That we would walk not only in the obedience of it, yes, Lord, of course, but in the, um, in the great, deep blessing you have for it. So do it, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.